Matthew chapter 14. The story that we're going to look at this morning is the story of the untimely and unfortunate death of the great prophet John the Baptist. You remember John from the Gospel of Matthew. He was the one that was sent to make a way in the wilderness, to prepare the way for the Lord. And that's exactly what John did. He prepared the way for Jesus to come and to be understood in Israel. But John died a very untimely and unfortunate death. Being in his early 30s himself, as was his cousin Jesus, he died at the hand of a wicked man by the name of Herod, and we know him from history, Herod Antipas. I remember a day in the past so clearly. It was November 22nd, 1963. I was sitting there in the second row, three chairs from the back at St. Cecilia's School in Tustin, California, and news came over the loudspeaker that President Kennedy had been shot and that he wasn't expected to live. And I remember how crushed I was and how hard that was as news to be able to handle. And I grieved over it. As, even as a child of 10 years of age, I grieved over it and wept. Fast forward about 30 years or so, after my second or third return from a trip to Israel, uh, there uh, I was teaching from the Gospel of Mark in a parallel passage to the one we're going to look at this morning, going through the same story, the untimely death of John the Baptist, and just something triggered inside of me, and it was embarrassing, but in front of the congregation, I just started weeping, and I couldn't control myself, weeping over the untimely and tragic and unfortunate death of John the Baptist. Why was it untimely? Why was it tragic? Because of the way it happened, and because of the reasons for which it happened. And it just was so seemingly unnecessary. His life on earth, John's life on earth, ended because of the wrath of a petty politician fueled by carnal passions. So this morning what we're going to do is look into Matthew's account of this story. We're going to get a little help from the Gospel of Mark, who has a little bit of an expanded version of the story. And we're going to see what we can learn from this account. The first part deals with false conclusions with regard to the identity of Jesus. Verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. A little bit about Herod. He's called here a Tetrarch. Originally, a Tetrarch was one of four rulers over an area. Later, it just came to mean a ruler over a particular geographical province. Herod Antipas was ruler over the region of Galilee. We know from our studies in the Gospels that Galilee is the place where Jesus actually lived, for the most part, and did most of his miracles. It's located, of course, uh, by the Sea of Galilee in the northern part near Capernaum, uh, which is um, able to be viewed today if you go on a trip to Israel. But this Herod, Herod Antipas, ruled in Galilee. 
And we know some other things about him from history. We know that even though he wasn't technically called a king, he wanted the title of king very much. And even petitioned the Roman emperor Caligula for that title of king, but Caligula turned him down. He didn't consider him worthy of that title of king, and so he refused him. Well, here's Herod the Tetrarch, and he's in Galilee, and he's hearing the things that Jesus did. He'd never seen him, apparently. Later on in Jesus' ministry, right before he was to go to the cross, uh, Herod actually aggressively, this same Herod, wanted to see Jesus because he was hoping to see Jesus do some kind of a miracle in front of him. But Jesus had no time for Herod. He wasn't about to put on some sort of a divine magic show for this rebellious man. And so instead of uh, consenting to his request, he rejected the request and never did see Herod. And so this Herod heard these reports of Jesus about all the miracles that were being done, and he's trying to figure out who is he? What does he represent? And there were various theories that were floating around at that time. The Gospel of Mark tells us that some thought that Jesus was actually the Old Testament prophet, prophet Elijah, who never died, by the way. He was uh, whisked off into heaven by a divine chariot, angels of fire. Others said that this Jesus uh, is actually the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. The Lord had said concerning Moses that he would raise up a prophet that would be very much like Moses, a prophet to the nation of Israel, and that that would be the prophet that the people of Israel were to listen to. So some people thought that Jesus was the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Luke's gospel tells us that others were saying that he was one of the ancient prophets that had risen from the dead. But Herod's conclusion was a little different from those. He believed that John the Baptist was actually who Jesus was. John the Baptist risen from the dead. And by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, that's why he had these kinds of powers. That was Herod's conclusion. Now there, of course, ought to be some kind of reason why Herod would conclude such a thing. William Barclay, in his commentary, cites the Christian writer Origen, who early in church history, according to tradition, said that John the Baptist and Jesus looked a lot alike, that they were very similar in appearance. And so maybe Herod mistook them for each other because of their close physical resemblance. If that's true, then you could see why there might be a connection there. But probably more likely... This Herod, because of the sins that were in his life, was suffering from the pangs of a strongly guilty conscience. Because a guilty conscience oftentimes has the power to cause someone to dream up all kinds of weird theories about what's going on in life and about what is true. The commentator Trapp, who wrote in the 17th century, had this to say about John the Baptist and about Herod's view of Jesus. He says of Herod, he imagined still that he saw and heard the holy head, John the Baptist's head, shouting and crying out against him, staring him also in the face at every turn. So Trap pictured John the Baptist, the image of John the Baptist's head appearing in, 
Herod's mind day after day, shouting to him, crying out against his sin. And these are the reasons why Herod came to these weird and wild theories about Jesus. Trapp goes on to say, God hath laid upon evildoers the cross of their own consciences, that thereon they may suffer afore they suffer, and their greatest enemies need not wish them a greater mischief. So Herod, guilty conscience, inundated by his own guilt, overwhelmed by it, had to come up with some kind of theory concerning who Jesus was, and he said, well, this is John the Baptist, reason from the dead. So when he couldn't understand or believe what the Bible said, he came up with his own conclusions. Here's the point that we need to make at this time in the study. Human reasoning by itself is not sufficient to make conclusions about who Jesus is. God didn't leave it up to human reasoning to decide who Jesus is and what he's about. He doesn't just leave it up to our human thought process and say, well, you know, just whatever Jesus you want to invent in your mind, go ahead and make that Jesus, and that would be fine. Because Jesus is only known through divine revelation. God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself through the things that he's made, his creation, He's revealed himself through the 66 books of the Bible, and he's revealed himself supremely through the person of Jesus Christ. And so what God says about Jesus in the Bible, in the New Testament record, the historical eyewitness testimony of the four gospel writers, what God says about Jesus, that's who Jesus is. And he's known by divine revelation, but Herod left it up to his own imagination to try to figure out who Jesus is, and he came up with the conclusion that he must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. And so he was dead wrong about his conclusion. Now, why was John imprisoned initially? Verses 3 and 4 tell us. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Uh, Herod had put John in prison because Herod himself had become an adulterer. Here's the history behind it. Uh, Herod had a brother. This Herod had a brother named Philip. Philip was married to this woman named Herodias. Herodias was the daughter of the king of Petra, a neighboring king. And while Philip and Herodias were married together, they had a daughter. And sometime later, this Herod, the Herod in our story, divorced wrongfully his own wife. He didn't have grounds for divorce, biblically or in any other way. He divorced his own wife. And then while Herodias was still married to his brother Philip, this Herod seduced Herodias and convinced her to divorce her husband Philip. And so she left Philip to come and live with this Herod Antipas. So not only was Herod an adulterer, but he caused adultery in this woman that was now living with him. Now we know about Herod that even though he put John in prison, he had previously and continued liked listening to John speak. Mark tells us that Herod had actually protected John at some point in the past, 
And he knew that John was a just and a holy man, so he would like to come and listen to him speak and hear what he had to say. But Mark's gospel also tells us that Herod feared John, which is sort of a weird combination. He liked to hear him speak, but on the other hand, he feared him. And on the other hand, he protected him at times. So there was a mixed bag of reactions to John that Herod was experiencing. He was afraid of him. I, I sort of liken his fear of John to, you know, a fear that I used to have years ago when I'd meet somebody who was really strongly trained in the martial arts. I'd meet them and I'd, and I'd be standing there and I wouldn't know friend or foe. Now, if foe, this guy could dismember me in a moment. So there's this kind of curiosity, but there's this fear at the same time. And I think that's kind of what Herod was experiencing in relationship to John. There was a curiosity but a fear at the same time. There's no question that Herod knew that standing before him when John was speaking to him was a man that was completely unlike Herod. Herod was completely unlike John. John was a holy and a just man. Jesus said among those born of women, none are greater, none have been greater than John the Baptist. So he was a man among men, the best of the class. And Herod knew being in John's presence that John was altogether unlike him and that Herod was altogether unlike John. Because Herod, there wasn't a holy bone in his body. And there wasn't a righteous bone in his body. And he knew that. And he was afraid of John. And he knew how much John differed from him. And he knew how unholy he was standing in his presence. Now, the reason for the imprisonment, again, verse 4, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. It's not lawful for you to have Herodias. In the original Greek language in which this was written and from which this English Bible we have before us was translated, literally, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. The idea is that he continued to say this. This was a repeated message that he gave to Herod. And how many times did he give it? We don't know how many times. But he wasn't afraid to keep saying it again and again, even though Herod Antipas was in a position of power and could do something like cut his head off if he wanted to. But John had a message, and his message came from God. And like Jeremiah the prophet, as long as the message was in his heart and he didn't say anything, it was like a fire burning within him. And he had to speak it. He had to say to this king what God wanted to say to him. It's not lawful for you to have her. And there's no question that Herod knew that that was the case. That what he was doing was illegal according to the law of Moses, and it was illegal according to natural law, which is actually not natural at all. It's given by God. It comes from his own character and his own nature. He knew that. He knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. And so this message that John kept bringing to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. He knew it was the right message, but it upset him. And as we'll see, it greatly upset Herodias, who was living with him through adultery. So what happened? What's the tragic story of John's martyrdom? It begins in verse 5. And although he, that is Herod, wanted to put him, that is John the Baptist, to death, Herod feared the multitude 
because they counted him, that is John, as a prophet. So Herod wanted to put John to death, but he was not willing to because he was afraid of the multitude because the multitude believed John to be a prophet. Verse 6, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now Mark tells us that Herod is the one that threw this birthday party for himself, which makes me ask the question, if Herod hadn't thrown this birthday party for himself, would there have been a birthday party for him? I mean, he wasn't the kind of guy that people wanted to celebrate his life or his birth. Interesting question, perhaps. But he was throwing this birthday party, and his live-in companion, Herodias, her daughter, danced before these men that were with Herod and before Herod. Herod threw this birthday party. There were nobles there. There were high-ranking military officers there. There were some of the chief men of Galilee present. And as this young woman, we don't think girl, as this young woman danced, she was dancing a sensual, provocative kind of a dance with definite, suggestive uh, movements and probably clothing. And this is something, of course, that inflamed the passion of these men that were sitting with Herod. And it tells us here in verse 6 that this pleased Herod, which is sort of a sickening kind of a thought to have, is that here's this, this would-be king who's married, allegedly, to this woman named Herodias who has a daughter that's dancing before them. He has a kind of lust for his own uh, household family member, so to speak, and it was just a horrible kind of a scene to even contemplate. It pleased Herod. Now notice in verse uh, 7, it goes on to say, Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So connect verses 6 and 7. The daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Why did Herod promise with an oath to give this young woman whatever she asked? What would possibly possess a man of his kind of power and influence to make such a blanket oath and promise to someone? Anything you ask, it's yours. Anything you want, it's yours. And the text tells us here what was it that motivated him to give the, make this foolish promise. It was because he was pleased with the dancing. Again, he was inflamed through his own lust. He was pleased with the dancing, and so he spoke before he had a chance to think and reason, and he promised anything that she might ask. And so verse 8 tells us, So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. There's so many other things that she could have asked for. Now Mark's gospel tells us again that Herodias' daughter didn't know how to answer this request. Ask whatever you will. It's going to be yours. You can have it. And she didn't know how to respond to Herod. So she went to her mother Herodias for help with what she should ask for. And her mother Herodias, who had held a long grudge against John the Baptist because he had spoken out against their relationship, 
she asked and told her, tell him to give John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And so that was the request. Fueled by passion and by the anger and the spite of a woman who was angry because her sin had been exposed. The reaction in Herod, verse 9, and the king was sorry. Mark tells us the king was exceedingly sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. Now, there was nothing noble about this for Herod to follow through with this request. He could have done the man thing here what a real man would do. And he could have said, you know, when I said that to you, when I, when I said ask whatever you want, it didn't include you asking for something that would be sinful or that I would have to violate God's law to fulfill it. So I can't fulfill a sinful request. I'm going to have to say no to what you say to me and what you've suggested. He could have had that kind of response. But he had these dignitaries next to him And he had this environment, this banquet hall full of people that he'd invited to his birthday party. And he just feared that he was going to lose face if he went back on his original oath, his original promise. So rather than fear God, and rather than listen to what God had to say, and what he knew to be the right thing, he just capitulated, he gave in, and went ahead and fulfilled the request And he commanded it to be given to her. That's what he did. And so verse 10 tells us that he sent and had John beheaded in prison. He sent. Mark tells us again in his account that he sent an executioner. So there's no question that he sent one of his executioners. He had more than one executioner in his employ. And that's the kind of thing he needed to keep power because that's how he ruled. He, he ruled by fear and intimidation and domination. So he had executioners that were part of his payroll, part of his staff. And he would send them on these missions to get rid of people that were in the way of his power and in, in the way of what he thought was progress. That's how he ruled. He didn't rule by love and didn't rule by servanthood. You know, every leader, every ruler, whether it's the parking meter maid or whether it's the president of the United States or the head of the UN Security Council, every leader, every human leader has their power because God has given them that power. And ultimately, one day, every single human leader, no matter what level of leadership it is, is going to be accountable to the living God for how he or she fulfilled that responsibility of leadership. Herod was in the wrong here. He was absolutely in the wrong. And he's completely accountable for what he did in this instance as he sent an executioner. And he was completely accountable for the way he ruled within his domain there in the area of Galilee. And he will have to answer to God for all of these things. So it tells us in verse 11 that his head, that is John's head, was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. This wasn't done in some side room out of the 
view of the guests. This was done in front of everyone. There was a platter upon which was the head of John the Baptist with blood pouring out on it and with the gaze or the, the fixed look that was on John's face when his head was removed from his body, it was there on that face, and it was brought in for everyone to see, and it was presented to the girl, and the girl presented it to his mother's. It was gross. There was nothing about this that had any hint of nobility whatsoever. It was evil. It was gross. It was horrible. It was cruel. And something that satisfied this wicked woman, Herodias. So John is dead. He is now a martyr and he joins the ranks of the martyrs. Did he know that this could be possibly the outcome of his ministry? I don't think there's any question. Prophets knew those kinds of things. In fact, Every one of us who are believers in Christ should know that our commitment to Christ could one day end up in suffering persecution and maybe even the loss of life. We need to count that cost and realize that that that's that's the reality of it. But prophets really lived in that world of knowing that their lives are in danger. But they did it anyway. They didn't count their lives as being dear unto themselves, as Paul the Apostle would later say to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. They didn't count their lives as dear to themselves, but they finished their course. They were responsible representatives of what God had to say, and when God spoke it into their lives and into their hearts, they spoke it to the people, whether it would be to a king or whether it would be to the general population. Yeah, John knew that this could end up being what happened. Now, John himself had said early in his ministry, when Jesus came on the scene and John had fulfilled his mission of pointing the way to Jesus, John himself said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Well, here's the maximum way for that to be fulfilled. John is now dead. He's decreased. He's out of everybody's eyes and out of, uh, out of the view of the public completely now. And Jesus is the only one left the Son of God. And he knew that this might happen, but he did it anyway. Let me ask you a question. Do you think John's sorry now that he did this? I don't think so. Do you think anybody who's lived for Christ and who has suffered for it is sorry that they live for Christ even if it brought suffering? I don't think so. It's worth it. This is a little blip on the screen, this thing we call time. Eternity is eternity. And that's the place where we have the fullest and most amount of gladness. So John is dead. In verse 12 it says, Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Note that phrase, they took away the body and buried it. Spurgeon points out, it's not said by the evangelists that they buried John, but they took up his body and buried it. They couldn't bury John. The real John, no man could bury. And Herod soon found that, being dead, John still spoke. See, the definition of death, the biblical definition of death, is when the body expires and ceases to function and the spirit of that human being departs from the body. 
That's when death occurs, when the spirit departs from a body. And I've been at, at bedsides in hospitals when people have died. I've been there at the moment of death. And I've been at the moment, there at the moment of death of believers. And it's very, very amazing each and every time you realize that at the moment of death, that that person is no longer there. The body's there, but the person's not there. The body has been vacated, and the spirit has departed from that body. And it's very, very clear, and it's very, very obvious to those that are paying attention to that type of thing, because to be absent from the body for the believer is to be present with the Lord. That body that they buried was just his tent. It was just his shell. Maybe it was a little bit like that, not saying this of John at all, but the preacher who was doing a funeral and there was an open casket and the body was in the casket. People were viewing the body. And he was trying to make this point that this is just the shell. This is just the, the tent, just the shell. So the preacher said, this is the shell. What you're seeing here is not the man. This is just his shell. The nut has already gone. <laughs> he said it. I, I don't know. And I don't know anybody that's ever repeated that in a funeral. <laughs> Except for me, myself, and I have actually used that. So they gave John's body a proper burial out of respect for the body, and then the disciples went and told Jesus. We're going to conclude this message this morning by taking a little bit closer look at the many sins of Herod Antipas as revealed in this story. And why would we want to look at the anatomy of Herod's sins or the breakdown of Herod's sins? I think it's helpful for us to know what sin is, first of all. And I think it's also to be able to identify when we sin, what sins we've actually committed. Because when I know what sin I've actually committed, then I know exactly what I need to confess. And confession is just admitting what I've done. And if I don't really know what I've done, then how can I possibly confess it? So let's look at the breakdown of Herod's many sins. The first one is the sin of unbelief. You see, instead of personally examining the evidence about Jesus' miracles, instead of personally comparing the evidence that he examined with Scripture, Herod just came to his own conclusions. He sinned against the light, and he sinned against divine revelation. And so he was full of unbelief. It was willful unbelief on his part, and he was responsible for it. Unbelief is a sin. Secondly, the sin of adultery, which, of course, is very obvious. Jesus said earlier in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who's divorced commits adultery. Not only was Herod Antipas an adulterer, but he was also involved in the adultery of Herodias. Now, it's sanitized today. You know, the movie star magazines and the soap operas and all of these periodicals, they talk about these things as being an affair. 
But God says it's adultery. He doesn't call it by the sanitized word affair, which has some sort of a twisted romantic side to it. Oh, an affair. He had an affair. She had an affair. Whisking away quietly, nobody knowing. That type of thing. But God calls it adultery. That's how he names it. And, of course, the word adultery has a much stronger sense of meaning to it. Herod also was guilty of the sin of weakness. He was guilty of the sin of weakness. You see, he had a responsibility to listen to God. But instead of listening to God, he listened to and feared his wicked wife. And that was weakness. A man should never be in that place where he listens to the suggestions of wicked people, and if he's married to somebody who makes those kinds of suggestions, he's under no obligation to listen to them. In fact, he's under great obligation to ignore and reject those suggestions. He was weak. Again, Trapp, the commentator, 17th century, says of this woman Herodias, she ruled him at her pleasure, as Jezebel did Ahab. But it never goes well when the hen crows. See, it's roosters that are supposed to crow, not hens. And when the hen crows, it never goes well. And here's Herodias saying things that she shouldn't have said and making noises that she shouldn't have been making, and he shouldn't have listened to them. The next sin, he was guilty of the sin of the fear of man. He feared the multitude, which always brings a snare. You might want to jot this down, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord should be safe. The fear of man brings a snare. Herod feared the multitude. He feared human beings more than he feared God. Herod was like the consummate politician. He licked his finger and held it up in the air to see which way the wind was blowing, and that was going to determine his responses. And I have to tell you personally, I distrust politicians. I don't believe them. I don't think they have the capacity to tell the truth all the time. Now, I trust men and women who run for office to truly be public servants, and I think there are people that are like that. And I applaud them. But once they get into the political process, and once they start listening to the public opinion polls, and once they start candidating on the basis of what's going to get them elected or keep them electable for the next election, that's where I start to lose confidence in them. But having said that, and I'm going to do a little bit of a a short detour here because we've got an election year coming up, and I'm not going to get political here except to say this. Even though I distrust politicians because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, you've heard that, I'm still going to vote. I am going to vote, and I urge you to vote, too. And if you're not registered to vote, I urge you to get registered now so you'll be eligible to vote once the uh, election comes. I'm going to vote, and I encourage you to do the same. And then when you do vote, vote your conscience according to your biblical worldview. Now, let me give you some suggestions as to how to vote, no matter what the office. Which candidate will support human life in the womb? Which candidate will protect human life in the womb? In my opinion, if a candidate gets it wrong on what human life is within the womb, is that a human being or not? And if a 
Canada gets it wrong on whether or not abortion is should be encouraged or greatly discouraged and eliminated altogether, if they get it wrong on that question, how can I trust them to lead an office? Here's another question that I always put before candidates. Which of these candidates will support the nation of Israel, the state of Israel? Now, this is crucial for our nation. In my opinion, and I'm just speaking my own opinion here, and you may not agree with me, but if you read your Bible, I think you'll agree with me. The Bible says that those who bless Abraham and his seed will be blessed, and those who curse Abraham and his seed will be, blessed, will be cursed. That same promise was repeated to Isaac, Abraham's son, and that same promise was repeated to Jacob, Isaac's son, who happened to be the father of the entire Jewish nation. And therefore, if someone supports Israel and their right to exist and the state of Israel and a nation supports that nation, God will bless that nation. My opinion now, I believe that this is the reason why America has not imploded up to this point because we have stood with Israel. So look at that question and find out where the candidate stands on that subject. And then thirdly, and not least in importance here, which candidate will try to protect the Constitution of the United States as it was initially intended to be understood? Which candidate will protect and guard the Constitution of the United States as it was originally written and intended to be understood? So there you go. I give you those things as a pastor and somebody who cares about the United States of America, as you do as well. Think it through. Pray it through. Vote your conscience. Register. Make sure you do it. Okay, so done with that. Herod was guilty of the fear of man. Paul said later, Do I seek to please men? If I still pleased men, I should not be the servant of Jesus Christ. His next sin, lust. Lust for Herodias' daughter. He didn't do anything to curb that lust. He didn't do anything to control it. But he let it go. He let those passions run their course, and it led him to his foolish oath, which is the next sin, the sin of foolishness, the sin of foolishness. It's not for rulers and leaders to submit to foolishness, but it was for this king. He submitted to foolishness. What kind of foolishness is it to give a young woman that kind of power to ask that large of a thing? That's foolish for any leader to submit and succumb to that low of, a, of an oath. His responsibility as a leader before God was to protect the people, ensure liberty and justice for all, and he didn't do it in, even in that oath. Who knows what this young woman could have asked for if she had not asked for the head of John the Baptist? Scary thoughts. Isaiah 32:17 says, The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. That's what a ruler needs. A ruler needs to do what is right, as God defines it, and that effect will be peace and quietness and assurance within his dominion. He was also guilty of being brutal. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days there would be those who would be brutal. That's what Herod was. He was brutal, not to mention gross. And again, just imagine being there that day and being part of that birthday bash and having to 
witnessed this thing. And there may have been sympathizers to John the Baptist in that crowd. What were they going through? Those that really believed that John was a prophet in that birthday party. What recourse did they have? Were they going to speak out against what had happened? Not probably. Most likely not. But he was also a lover of himself. That's his next sin. He was a lover of himself. Uh, Paul, again, in 2 Timothy 3, says that in the last days, men would be lovers of themselves. And you say that today in this culture, and most would say, well, what's so wrong with that? Well, it's love of self rather than being lovers of God. It's love of self out of context. We're told today we need to have more self-esteem. I disagree with that statement. I think we've got plenty of self-esteem. I think we need to have proper self-esteem. I think we need to see ourselves the way God sees us, as sinners saved by grace, as those who, if we've believed, are in Christ and forgiven and being made conformed into the image of Jesus Christ day by day. We need proper self-esteem. We don't need higher self-esteem. And the Bible says that rather than love ourselves first and foremost, we're to actually love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We already love ourselves plenty. Now let's just turn our attention on our neighbor and try to love them the way we already love ourselves. That's the second great commandment. But he was a lover of himself. He was number one in his own eyes, and it was all about him, as it is with so many today. And then lastly, his sin was that he was a persecutor of a servant of God. Again, one of God's very finest, John the Baptist. Herod knew that John was a holy and a just man, yet he persecuted him even unto death. And he didn't respect God enough to leave one of God's choicest servants alone. Leave him alone. Don't touch God's anointed. Don't go there, Herod. Now, if all we had was the New Testament account, we would think perhaps that Herod got away with all this and that there were no consequences. But that's not the case. He didn't get away with it. History tells us actually what happened. He was already previously shamed when he tried to become king and the emperor Caligula uh, rejected his request. But it went even further than that. As the story goes, he married his brother Philip's wife. Well, the problem was is that uh, his first wife that he had put away illegally, Herod, she was a princess from a neighboring kingdom to the east, the king of Petra. And her father was offended at the fact that Herod had divorced illegally his daughter and put her to that kind of public shame. And so he rousted up an army and went and attacked Herod and defeated him in battle. And then after that, another of Herod's brothers, Agrippa, accused him of treason against Rome, and the Roman government agreed with that accusation. And this Herod Antipas was banished into the Roman province of Gaul, modern-day France, and in the province of Gaul, both Herod and his wife Herodias ended up killing themselves and committing suicide. That a horrible end. 
And it's just like in the book of Numbers where God promises, be sure your sin will find you out. It looks like people are getting away with it. And it looks like it's acceptable because the culture accepts it. And things that are happening today that nobody winks at and nobody blushes about are things that happened 30 or 40 years ago that the whole society would be embarrassed and ashamed and would be horrified at. But just because the culture says, well, it's okay for two people to live together without being married, and it's okay for this guy to divorce her, to marry him, or, yeah, to marry him or her. I mean, it's okay for any of the above to happen. You know, this is just part of our culture, part of our society. But that's not what God thinks. That's not his estimation of the thing. And eventually a person's sin will find them out. Now, when John was looking at Herod and saying, it's not lawful for you to have her, maybe he was pointing his finger. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he was being direct and he was clear. It's a merciful thing for God to be direct and clear with us about our sin. It's a good thing that he's direct and clear with us about our sin because then we know what to do with it. Then we know how to confess it. Then we know how to turn from it. And then we know what to believe God for as we trust Christ, whose death paid for all of our sins. Interesting story, telling us an awful lot about human nature, unfortunate part and side of human nature, and leading us to a hopefully a heightened awareness of God and who he is and our responsibility to live for him. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is true. And it entirely and completely comes from you. We thank you, Lord, for the treatment of these incidents in the Bible, how you just lay them out as they are. And you tell us exactly what happened so that we can, through your word and by the Holy Spirit, arrive at spiritual discernment and conclusions about what these stories mean. And for us this morning, this story means that we should fear you more than man. We should respect you and your word more than anything else. We should love you and not ourselves first. And we should be willing to speak for you whenever you lay something on our hearts that you want us to share. So many lessons here, Lord, and we pray that you'd burn them into our hearts and build them into our lives as we continue to grow in Jesus Christ. And as we're continuing to pray, if there's anyone here this morning that has never come into personal faith with Jesus Christ, this is your opportunity. You can come into faith with Jesus right now, you can actually invite him to come into your life and to forgive you of your sins, and, and he will do it. You can ask him to forgive you for all that you've done in your life, and he'll do it. And you can ask him to give you the strength and the power to live a completely different kind of a life, and he'll give you that strength and power. He really will, because he loves you. See, the good news is that Jesus died for your sins and my sins 
When he died on a cross 2,000 years ago, he died to pay the penalty for everything we've done wrong against God and his word. And then he rose from the dead so that he might give us life. And you can have that life and you can have that forgiveness this morning if you just believe. So if that's you and that describes you and you're saying, yes, I I do need to make this change and I do need to believe the, the truth about Jesus and I, I do very much want to be forgiven, then pray this prayer after me, would you please? Lord, please forgive me of my sin. You know that what I've done is wrong and and now you're helping me understand it. Forgive me of my sin, Lord, and give me a new start. Give me the strength to live for you. I invite you to come into my life right now. I invite you to take over. I ask you to become not just my savior, but also my master, that I might live for you and serve you. Lord, give me at this moment a new life. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that you rose from the dead. And I make that confession now. Hear this prayer, Lord Jesus.